Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the MAD Podcast, the Mental Awareness Discussion. As always, brought to you by Broken Drift Productions and Banana Bros. Make sure you follow us online at Broken Drift Productions and at AZ Banana Bros. We got the swag online. Hit them up if you would like to order new shirts. They got some good ones that are coming out. Uh, my name is Miles Weber, and with me, as always, is my host on this podcast and co-host in life and love, my wife, Heather Weber. Hello, dear. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm amazing. I'm super excited. Yes, because we are here and I'm very excited about our guest. Uh, she is a doctor and a author, uh, Dr. Patricia Zorita Onya. Uh, but we will refer to her affectionately as Dr. Z tonight. So Dr. Z, how are you doing today? Very good. Super happy to chat with both of you. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you give the folks listening and watching a little bit of uh, background on what it is you do, which because it's a lot. Thank you. Yes, I will try to keep it short so I don't. I, yeah, people don't feel bored. <laughs> <laughs> I am a clinical psychologist. I specialize on acceptance and commitment therapy, and I exclusively work with any person stuck with a fear-based struggle like perfectionist, procrastination, obsessive compulsive disorder, phobias, panic attacks, anxiety performance, um, yeah, speaking performance. So any form of fear-based struggles, that's my cup of tea. And I'm all about inviting my clients to make these personal pivots from being stuck to actually start moving forward in life based on what's important to them, based on their values. I do have a private practice. That's what I, I see most of my clients. And I have written a couple of books. All the books are based on this particular approach called acceptance and commitment therapy, specific for different types of fear-based struggles. So that's in a nutshell what I do. <laughs> Oh, that's it. Huh? Right on. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> yeah, just uh, that, ah, no big deal. If I had to put it in a nutshell, look at this adorable, pretty nutshell. Right on. Awesome. That's really, really cool. Very, very cool. So you're the perfect person for us to have on because we've had on uh, somebody who has OCD. And that was an extremely fascinating episode because he was able to really kind of like give us a little bit of the inside of his head and how it works and the rationalization for everything. But uh, from your side of things, we always like to attack it from if you came across a person that you met and they had never heard of what OCD is and they didn't even know why you put those letters together. Uh, how would you explain OCD to somebody who probably has no concept of what that is? Thank you for asking that question because I think there is a lot of misinformation about what OCD is and what is not. Um, most people have been exposed to messages that obsessive compulsive disorder is about cleanliness and organization and being peculiar, but that's really far from the truth and how debilitating this condition can be for a person. Um, when I think of OCD, I'm thinking about a neurobiological condition in which a person is predisposed to have an overactive brain that is scanning for threat a lot. And when we think about obsessions, obsessions are this very sticky, annoying, and very uncomfortable thoughts, images, or sensations that a person has a really hard time letting them go. It's like you have put your fingers inside an electrical outlet and your whole body goes on edge and you kind of move on with your day. Uh, you know that it doesn't make sense, but the experience is extremely overwhelming. And obsessions for some people are related to fears of contamination. 
but the person can have obsessions related to their gender identity. People can have existential obsessions. Is there love after life? Does God really exist? People can have um, relationship obsessions. Is this love? Does she really love me? Do I really love him? Do I love my children? People can have aggressive obsessions like you're walking on the street and suddenly you imagine yourself stabbing a person you love so it can be very heterogeneous it's not just about cleanness or organization they can the brain collapse into anything as an obsession and then when a person experiences very overwhelming and annoying image or obsession or thought they usually are going to do two things one, they avoid a situation or a person that triggered that obsession, or they go into a compulsion. The media, again, thinks of compulsions as touching, tapping, rubbing, and certainly those are observable behaviors. But a lot of folks, if not all of, uh, all of the people that are struggling with OCD, they also have mental compulsions, which means that they are responding to the obsession with trying to figure out, they are replaying in their mind what exactly they say, how they say it. Um, they are repeating some words, letters, numbers. So it's the combination of having this overwhelming obsession that it's very inconsistent with who you are and responding to it either with a compulsion and avoidance that creates an OCD cycle. And then the more that you get stuck with that, the more that it unfolds in a disorder. Um, so that's, that's what is a little bit tricky, right? It's not just about cleanliness or organization. It's actually mm -hmm. debilitating for a person. And it's very heterogeneous, very heterogeneous. Um, a person may even have obsessions about wanting to die or wanting to kill themselves, not because they want to kill themselves, but because they're having suicidal obsessions. And they are questioning their intentions and what it really means to them. Mm. Okay. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Our uh, last guest who had OCD, he had a thing where he had to hear a certain song play on the radio at night when he was a kid going to bed or else he thought that his parents were going to die. And so like things like that, where it's just the irrationality linking to <clears throat> like some ultimate like extreme I think is what you pretty much just summed up right there. Yeah, yeah, it can be like that. Like sometimes I had clients that they had obsessions about walking by a person and having this fear that that person may steal the knowledge by looking at them, right? Um, so sometimes obsessions can be very out there, like really they don't make sense, but other times can be very linked to a person's day-to-day -day experience. Imagine, for example, that you, you want to have a baby, you work really hard to get pregnant, and then you deliver your baby, and you know that you want to be a loving and caring mother. But then when you're holding your baby, you imagine that you are asphyxiating your baby, and you're really scared of being with your child alone, right? And then you ask your husband or your partner to take care of the baby. You don't want to give a bath to your baby. So the obsessions about harming a baby they are not so out there as someone stealing knowledge by looking at me, right? They are part of a person's day-to-day -day experience, which makes OCD much harder sometimes to be recognized and to be catch before a person has struggled for years with these unwanted thoughts. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, 
Um, uh, wh wh where do you think, are there any trends from like childhood that would trigger somebody to developing OCD um, or maybe it's, I don't know, a certain series of life events, maybe if they get developed later, like when is, is there a trend, you know, is it younger people? Is there like an age, you know, could you discuss that a little bit more just to see if there's like any root from like where this comes from? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That's a great question. And sometimes people think that OCD gets developed because of trauma all the time. Uh, but it's not, that is not consistent with what research is showing us. Certainly a person that has been exposed to a traumatic event may develop OCD um, behaviors that coexist with trauma, but it's not necessarily a cause and effect relationship. Uh, now, sometimes people are struggling with chronic forms of OCD. Uh, they have certainly been exposed to their parents who are also dealing with OCD and they had untreated OCD, so they learned behaviors by imitation, right? Um, but think about that what we know about OCD is that a person has a brain that is predisposed to anxiety sensitivity. It's really a neurobiological condition. Their amygdala is actually identifying threat more often than not. Like if you're walking on the street, you may say, oh my gosh, it's so sunny. Look at this, so gorgeous. A person with OCD or with anxiety sensitivity maybe walk on the street, watch out. I down here I may die here what if I touch that right what if the person walks by me so they are anticipating threat not because something is wrong with them but because they have a very very overworked brain um, so I think just something to clarify um, we don't think of OCD as the manifestation of another struggle OCD can coexist with substance abuse with depression, with social anxiety, with trauma, but OCD by itself is a neurobiological condition. And some people, like with Hyde, some people have more than others. Okay. What kind of therapy, because I know you work with like ACT therapy. So like what kind of therapy do you feel like has worked the best with clients that you've had with OCD? Thank you for asking that. One of my favorite questions. <laughs> and, and here is why I will tell you if it's okay to share a little bit of background. Um, when a person is dealing with social anxiety, when I'm afraid of public speaking or I have performance anxiety, um, usually the stats are showing us that the person will go into therapy and ask for effective help between one to two years. On average, if I have panic attacks, one to two years, I will go to see a shrink. When you think about OCD, a person on average goes suffering in loneliness 17 to 20 years because people don't know they're dealing with OCD because we don't have a lot of people training OCD. So imagine how debilitating it is for a person to be hiding and suffering with those obsessions and not knowing what's going on with them and feeling like they're losing their mind. So unfortunately, in those 17 to 20 years, a person may try all types of things, changing their diet, smoking weed every single day, uh, doing acupuncture, going to talk to a shrink, you know, that doesn't have a training in OCD. And all those things exacerbate the OCD episode. To the person that I really mean it, a person that goes with untreated OCD, they feel like they're losing their mind. Their sense of identity of who they are in the world also gets affected, right? When you cannot make sense of all these thoughts that are coming, it's a really hard thing to be. Um, the most effective treatment is called 
exposure response prevention. Um, I know it sounds really, really, really fancy, fancy, but it's all about helping a person to face their obsessions in a way that is gradual and progressive. Now, within the type of therapy I practice, acceptance and commitment skills, um, acceptance act is basically a mindfulness and behavioral therapy. So the whole model is all about when you are getting triggered and you have the yucky obsession, let's just step back, notice how it feels, notice how you sense it, check whether it's important for you, and then face in the service of your values. Face these obsessions in the service of being who you want to be in your relationship and in that relationship with yourself. Um, so exposure response prevention, the frontline treatment, we have plenty of research for the last three years knowing it works. There are differing ways of delivering exposure. The, the, the approach that I use is integrating act and exposure, which is very compassionate, very actionable, and I think very relatable to a person. I like that uh, you're using the compassion and everything with the exposure because I mean like I'm sure some people listening or watching might be thinking just like uh, the kind of like when you're a kid and they want to teach you to swim they just kind of toss you in the water and it's just like ah, hey, come on figure it out but uh, there has to be way more compassion with it you know I mean it can't just be like get over your fears what are you doing we got to move on you know to be able to kind of handle it delicately in a good way to be like, all right, like we got to work our way up to it. It's going to be fine. And so, yeah, no, that's fascinating. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for making that point. I remember my uncle, um, I am from Bolivia, South America. Yeah. And the stories I have is that <laughs> my uncle learned to swim because his friends throw him into the pool, right? Like yeah. very, you know, very, very tough. Um, I think when people think about facing their obsessions, Imagine that you are afraid that your partner may cheat on you and they hear this exposure is about, about imagine that your partner is cheating on you. Who wants to do that? That's brutal, right? Why would I go to therapy to do that? So the way that we think of exposure within ACT, it's really everything we do is in the service of who you want to be and as part of your day-to-day -day life. Um, and I think ACT by nature is a very compassionate approach because it's nobody's fault that you're walking in life with an overworked brain. It's not your fault. It doesn't mean that people are broken. It just means that we have to develop new ways of relating to that internal experience and we can do the things that are important to us, right? So I think that is also very important to clarify. Exposure doesn't have to be this rough approach, just give it down, just jump to the pool, right? It can be very compassionate and very gentle as well and still be effective. For sure. You said, um, you know, a lot of people are waiting 17 to 20 years going through getting undiagnosed. Are you finding that more people are getting diagnosed as an adult versus when they're a kid? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know that current stats about that, but I can tell you is that over the years, anecdotically, I think that I think the new generations um, are being exposed to uh, more accurate information about what OCD is. However, it's heartbreaking um, that the last, I don't know, the last 10, 14 years, I, I bump into many people in adult life in their late 30s, mid 40s, early 50s that have been dealing with OCD, you know, for years and they didn't know. So I think there is so much more information these days. I don't think it's enough. 
I don't think it's enough. That's why I appreciate the opportunity that you guys have by sharing what OCD is and how people can get effective help. Uh, but I do think that we do have a large number of people that have been suffering for years in their own. And that's really breaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I know the last person that we talked to that had OCD, he was saying that they, his teachers were thinking more along the lines of ADD. And I feel like that's probably a common misconception when they're younger is misdiagnosing OCD with ADD. That, that is true. I think the challenge with OCD is that it can look so different from person to person, mm -hmm. right? That, that, and also the compulsions can be so different. Like if I have fears of contamination, let's say, it's possible that I avoid touching the doorknob, but I'm okay doing a handshake, right? For another person, it's possible they don't want to do a handshake, but they're okay touching a doorknob. Um, so I think it looks so different that many times um, people may confuse that with ADHD. Um, it also gets confused that it's like chronic worry that people are worrying all the time when in fact people are actually mentally ruminating as a compulsion. Um, it can be definitely confused sometimes for some people with social anxiety. Uh, it can be confused only with depression. Um, I, I think, sadly, OCD also has the highest comorbidity with other conditions. Uh, on average, a person when dealing with OCD is also going to be dealing with other psychological struggles, all driven by OCD. Um, so I think that's where we need more resources. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, because I know quite a few people that have OCD that also have depression with it. And now it's trying to link, okay, well, what do you put them on medications? Do medications exacerbate these, the symptoms a little bit more? So trying to figure all that out. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, I think, common um, coexistence of OCD and depression or OCD and chronic worry. Um, what is important, I think, is to remember that um, if a person gets into therapy, they can get help and they will experience a benefit if they are willing to face these obsessions. They will experience a benefit not just for the OCD, but also for these other struggles they are having. Um, some presentations require, require extra skills, right? Uh, sometimes, for example, I have clients that they are dealing with OCD, but they're also super feelers. And by super feelers, I mean that they feel too much, too quick, and they act too soon. It's as if they have also an emotion regulation problem. So there is other types of skills they may need, right? Um, so that's, I think, having a solid assessment that helps a person to map whether it's struggling, how the OCD looks, how these other struggles look, is going to be helpful for them in the long term. Awesome. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. Um, <clears throat> I always like attacking things from a perspective like the outside looking in, you know, i.e. people who are, you know, a loved one of somebody who suffers from OCD or, you know, a spouse of somebody mm -hmm. who suffers from OCD or it's somebody in your family, as it were. Um, what do you think are some things that a support system, like what does a support system look like for OCD, ideally, like a healthy support system? How can you be there for somebody you love who is going through this without, you know, saying something that's going to set them off or be insensitive, you know, like what's the best way to go about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing is for a, for a, for a significant other or a parent or a friend that has a person dealing with OCD in their life, it's important that, that they educate themselves. And I mean that we have to understand what OCD is 
um, I think many times we live at a time in which everything needs to be done quick and fast and why you kind of move on, just do it, right? Um, but reality is that if it will be easy for all my clients dealing with OCD, many things, of course I will do it. Of course I will do it. It's just ultra hard. So I think it will be helpful that the person learns more about what OCD is, um, especially from reliable sources, um, not anything that just pop up there. Um, and then it's helpful to to check what type of accommodations they're making. For example, in families, many times, if a person has fears of contamination, right, they may say, I don't want to open the door. Can you please do it for me? Or they may walk in the house using, using tissue papers all the time. Or they will ask you, you kind of put together the, I don't know, my jeans with my T-shirts. Or don't mix the colors, right? Or they may ask often, do you really love me? Are you sure you love me? How do you know you love me, right? So, and a significant other may be making all those accommodations, right? So I think if a person learns about OCD, they will also learn that they are making arrangements that perpetuate the cycle of OCD. So I think it's helpful to just, with caring, right, come up with a plan to remove those accommodations so that person dealing with OCD can face these situations without using any safety crutches. Um, I also encourage people to be transparent about this. Sometimes relatives with best intentions, they go into this surprise attack, but that's not very helpful, right? That's actually not, not, not good, that's bad news. Um, so being transparent about what you're learning, asking how you can help, asking what do we do with these family accommodations is important. And my last tip will be for, for significant others and relatives to respect the pace that a person with OCD wants to have when targeting OCD. Um, I think many times because we love people, we want them to just get things done and move as fast as possible. But I think it's helpful to respect their own process let them be in charge of their treatment. Let them be in charge of getting unstuck from OCD. So those will be, I think, some recommendations I will have. I love them. I think that's all very great. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Heather, do you have any? Well, I just think a lot of that can go, you know, with any, any of the other um, things that we've talked about on this podcast of just respecting the process. I think that's a very good blanket statement that a lot of people don't you know, believe in and follow up with. Um, I do have questions because I know you have two workbooks that you've written too. Are you typically doing those workbooks in tandem with therapy? Or is that kind of to help replace some therapy? So what was kind of your inspiration with the workbooks? Well, first, thank you for asking about it. I get shy sometimes talking about my workbook, so I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, yeah, I will try to keep it short. Um, one of the things that I encountered hundreds of years ago when working with clients is that therapy never goes smooth and perfect. Never, ever, right? There is all these, all these conversations that are constantly dancing, right? Between accepting and change and giving all the training and giving all the experience, right? I think I was humble enough to catch those moments of stuckness when I was getting my, my, my own anxiety was kicking in, like, oh my gosh, am I helping this person? So my books are really coming from the moments of stuckness I have in therapy. Every book I have written, it's because at some point or too many times in sessions, I was like, what's going on here? Where are we walking? Um, in the case of OCD, I knew that exposure response prevention is the frontline treatment. We know it works, but I also knew that if you have a pool of 100 people, 
30 people don't start treatment because they get too overwhelmed with this idea of facing their fears. It's scary, so they don't approach treatment. And then from the 70 people that they start treatment, between 33 to 37, they drop treatment because it's a scary, this idea of facing your fears, right? And when you have these yucky obsessions, it's harder. So at the end, we end up with a pool of maybe like 50 to 47 people that, you know, finish treatment. But then one year later, some people may still experience an OCD episode and they don't know how to handle. So to me, I live that reality with my clients many times. And my book came from knowing that acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and community skills have been extremely powerful in many domains, chronic pain, social anxiety, sports medicine, behavioral medicine, and also there can be many studies of its effectiveness for OCD. What I wanted to do was create something that will be much more accessible for clients uh, in a way that they can practice these active skills and exposure in a very actionable way. Um, so the book has basically 52 chapters. I know it's a big number, um, but the chapters are usually two to three pages. And I encourage my clients sometimes to read a couple of the chapters in conjunction with therapy. If a person is doing, let's say, other types of, of therapy, they can also benefit from the book because the book is research-based. We have done studies in my practice showing how effective it is. I'm publishing a paper next year on that. Uh, but it really works a person week by week um, on these micro skills they can use and apply. Um, I just finished doing an online class all based on the book. For eight weeks, I had 16 hours coaching people on how to use all these skills. And, and I do have to say that it has been such a neat experience to see people creating these micro skills day by day, day by day, and putting them into action all about OCD. Um, so I think the book can be used independently, or it can be also in conjunction for a person um, going through therapy. Um, the book can also be helpful for a person that has been recently diagnosed with OCD and doesn't know much, uh, a person who is in the midst of treatment, or a person that needs in recovery. It's a really, it's a, it's a full program, I think so. That's awesome. Well, and I feel like, and that's the reason why journaling works so well, right? Is because when we write it down and we're actually like repeating our thoughts to us and we're seeing it, it kind of helps us process what's going on a little bit differently. So I love that you've done that. Yeah, no, thank you. I think, I think it's a workbook, right? It's, it's, it's not an academic book, right? The book is not something which people will find as stats or things like that. I just speak fancy sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the book is a workbook in which I hope that the person makes the skills theirs and they can practice, right? The book is really about helping a person to understand what keeps OCD going and then how they can make the shift to figure out what's truly important in their life, what type of person they want to be, and move in that direction. I love, I love it. That. I love that. I love that. I also love the idea of writing mental health books with two to three page chapters, because that's just going to make anybody who's struggling feel like I'm breezing through this, man, like I'm, I'm a I'm a speed reader. This is amazing. Like, yeah, I would feel really good if I was like, especially for ADD, all ADD books should be like two chat two pages for a chapter max, I think. I think that's, that's. I yeah. agree. You know? In fact, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that. In fact, sometimes I say only read these three chapters because they're so short. My class said, no, I want to read more. I'm like, no, no, no slow down, right? <laughs> Don't do too many. <laughs> I know, I know. 
That's a good job. I think so. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. I'm Beautiful. A big fan. Right on. I love it. Well, Heather, do you have any more questions for Dr. Z? No, I mean, I think you've covered everything oh, thoroughly and yeah. have learned so much. And thank you for everything that you do and that you're continuing to do. And I know you have a podcast as well, right? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, the pod, yeah, thank you. And thank you again for having me and your consideration with the work. Um, the podcast is an experiment for me. Um, during COVID, I, I was just really, every project I was working on got behind. For first time in my life, I was like one year behind, nine months behind, I was having panic attacks. Um, and it's in that process that I decided to do something different. So the podcast is really all about teaching active skills for fear-based struggles. I talk a lot about the fear of a failure, imposter syndrome, procrastination, perfectionist, obsessions. Um, it's, it's a project in the heart. I am not as skillful as you guys are, but I'm practicing and putting myself out there. <laughs> that's all you can do. Yeah, seriously, that's all you can do. Right on. Well, uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Z. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate all of you for listening and watching whatever it is you're doing that you're getting this information. We really appreciate it. So like and subscribe and share all that fun stuff. You can follow me at Miles Weber Joker on everything social media. Uh, Heather, you can follow her at Bodies by Heather, everything social. Uh, Dr. Z, let them know where they can find you online or if they want to get any of your books or anything like that, feel free to plug. Okay. Well, um, thank you again for having me. And I am a Twitter person. I think my handle is like Dr. Z dash behaviorist. And I'm also on Instagram. If someone is dealing with OCD, uh, please go to the website actbeyondocd.com. That's where we're putting a lot of resources. And thank you again for having me. Thank you uh, so much. Yes, Dr. Patricia Zurita Onya. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll see y'all next week. Bye, everybody.